consumers have their own relative ROI, right? If I'm paying X amount for something, I expect this amount of value back. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right. You're listening to Hawk Talk. We're live here with Xavier Kochart. How you doing, man? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You are you are a legend, man. So it's pretty cool to be on your show. No, this is super fun. It's a long time coming. So got to start it out. I want to make an assumption. At three years old, did you have like the power suit on doing giant M&A deals for major media technology companies? Like, is that how it started? Is that where <laughs> you just immediately hit the ground running out of the womb and started doing big deals? Or take me back. Like, where are you from? Let's hear about the childhood side. Yeah, no, not I. I did not know. I mean, it's it's funny, and probably one of the, the the themes that at least I have discovered in my own life is how serendipitous the path has been, and how every time I definitely thought I had a plan in life, something kind of hit me. In many cases, not at my own volition, and it sort of redirected me. And so, but looking back, it's it's kind of been good. So no, my origin. I did not know I was going to be doing this at all. I'm from New York originally. And, you know, I just, I'm a Yankees fan. I, I grew up just outside the city. And I was just a kid that honestly just, I have, I've actually, believe it or not, I've become over the years, I was a very social kid, loved to chat with everybody, loved to interact with everybody, loved to engage with everybody. And I feel like as the years have gone on, I've gotten less social. I've gotten less interactive. And I don't know if that's a function of age or, or cynicism, or maybe I'm just tired. I think it's, it's all of the above. It happens to me too. But I also think like this whole quarantine thing highlighted that like as extroverted as I thought I was, I, I'm, I'm good. Like, as you just said, I'm sitting in a mountain cabin with my wife by ourselves in the middle of nowhere. Like, I like this. I like talking to you. I like getting on Clubhouse, all these things, but I don't necessarily need to be around a hundred people all the time. So it's interesting. So, okay. So just outside of, you grew up outside of New York, whereabouts? We're just outside of New York. Originally from Rigo Park, Queens, and then Fort Lee, New Jersey. And tell me about upbringing, parents, like what were your parents entrepreneurs? Was your dad in media and technology? Like how did they help steer your childhood? You know, I grew up as first generation child of immigrant parents. And, you know, we did not come, my parents did not come here, you know, as doctors or lawyers or anything like that. So growing up, I had a, I watched them struggle. I watched them just kind of hustle, work hard. And so it was really, I think as a young child, I actually didn't, you know, it's, it's so interesting. There's, there's two interesting things that kind of, first of all, I recommend that if you can, everybody in the world should, should live one, one year of their life in New York City or a place as richly diverse as New York City. And I don't just mean ethnically diverse, but I mean just diversity of thought. And that's also kind of a, another recurring theme across my life, diversity of thought. And part of the reason for that is, you know, for a very, very long time, I actually did not even realize, you know, diversity and inclusion is, has right, rightfully taken its kind of place both in the workforce and in, in our culture, in our zeitgeist, in our society. But for a very, very long time, I didn't even realize that I was a person of color because in New York City, there were, I didn't even know who, who the majority and the minorities were. So yeah. it was all diverse like that. And similarly, I didn't really know. I didn't really know that we were poor. And so I just thought a lot of the, the habits that, that I formed as a child were, were not based in, you know, like 
I believe that life or, or our perception of life is relative and it's, it's, it's not absolute, even though metrics are absolute, but our appreciation for those are relative. So I didn't really have a relative basis for that. So I had two very hardworking parents, very loving parents. And my mother worked in a, in a hospital and she came over here working in a hospital as a registered dietitian for many years. In fact, she just recently retired. She's had that job her whole life. And my father, my father was, he had a master's degree in English in English literature. And he was the entrepreneur. He was the one. And I think it was an entrepreneur, not by choice. In my childhood, I saw the transition between you know how my immediate family, I guess, climbed out of one class, socio socioeconomic class to another. And it was purely based off of chutzpah. I mean, it was my dad's chutzpah. That's awesome. And so you've got a really unique sort of career in the fact that you are both an entrepreneur and sort of a corporate bigwig, which is not common. It really isn't to have both the senior executive title at a corporation and be, you know, truly a builder from scratch. I'm curious, like, kind of what came first? Like, so it, when you were a kid, were you also on entrepreneurial endeavors? Were you building little businesses as a preteen? Or what was going on through your childhood? What was your focus? So I'd say that the honest answer to that is yeah. no, I was not a... Um, honest answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, sometimes I think that like we have it, particularly those that arrive or whatever we want to say, like people like you, people like me, people like the other guests that you've had on the show. Sometimes it's easy to kind of not rewrite your origin story. I mean, memories kind of get blurred anyway, right? And, you know, I have... I'd like to think that I've made a little bit of a name as an entrepreneur. Back in the day, one of the hustles that my dad had, uh, he and a friend of his, owned a, uh, a video store, like, like an old school video store. I don't know how many people that are listening to Hawk Talk now or on the Clubhouse audience even remember these, but before there was even, certainly before streaming, certainly before DVDs and before Blockbuster, the distribution of like, movies to your house was done through a very, very fragmented, uh, a large and fragmented sort of mom and pop retail video store yep. network. And it was almost like you could, like anybody could open one. And so my father and his very good friend, who's, uh, that, that's, they've become very close family friends of ours for, uh, in, in our family, they had a video store. And when my dad, my dad, because my mom worked in a hospital all day. And so my dad, when he picked me up from school, when I was just a kid, he would bring me back to the video store because he had to work in the video store. And I sat in the back and I watched every single Disney movie. I mean, this is like, I'm probably age five, six, you know, yeah. something like that. I watched every single Disney movie every single Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes cartoon. And then after I was done with that, I started moving along the, you know, all the different uh, all the other movies, all the other genres, other than one genre. I was not allowed to go into one section. Uh, <laughs> but it started there. You can do horror, but not that one section. <laughs> right. And I really, at a very early age, developed a love for, I mean, we call it content, but for me, it was just film and TV. That makes sense. So you get out of school. What's next? Did you go? Did you know you went right into media? You knew you wanted to do content. What happened from there? You know, it's the same thing. Like you get recruited, and everybody was going investment banking or or strategy consulting. So I thought, okay, maybe that's what we're supposed to do. And yeah. so I did that. I worked for an investment bank in California, and I was in corporate finance. I was um, which one? Tucker Anthony Sutro. Now it, it's since been acquired by the Royal Bank of Canada. And I did mid-market IPOs, private placements, M&As, that kind of thing, but as an analyst or associate rather. And it was very, very interesting time. And it's so like, I can't even, it's, it's hard as today I manage folks and I've managed folks and, and I am managed of course by others. It's hard to even imagine that that era existed, but that was the era of 
100 to 120 hour work weeks in the office. And after you did that, you used to just say thank you. So that so so anyway, so I did that to start. I did so that. It's a great UBS commercial they launched like a week ago. It's like the most contrived. It, it got all the like big meme accounts for finance posted it that you've got to watch it. But it's a UBS like a day in the life of an investment banker. Supposedly now they meditate during lunch and they take yoga in the morning all together. Mm-hmm. And it's this thing that's like this is not investment banking, nor is it what draws people to it. But it was pretty funny. Well, you know, it's funny. There was one year that I was a banker, and this is no exaggeration. I came into the office every single calendar day of the year. Well, actually, with the exception of Christmas. But no, 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 that's not true. Christmas. <laughs> no, no, I think I did come in for Christmas, but I just to fax something, but only for like an hour or something. So, and at that point, you're almost at the end of the year, you got to prove a point. Yeah, at that point, you know. But it's funny because I know that, you know, I, I have so much respect for our men and women of, uh, that serve this country in the armed forces. But I can only imagine when you do something that challenging, that hard, that where you have to sacrifice your entire being for, you know, in their case, for our country, but in our case, or in my case, for this company, it's, I think it's great to have done that early in my life. Yeah. After that, I was never afraid of hard work. I was never, never afraid of all nighters. I was never afraid of, you know, problems that I didn't know how to solve. Now, to be clear, I was... I was super afraid when it was going on and I didn't have the time, if not most of the time, didn't know what the heck I was doing and just kind of moved by the seat of my pants. But that's a comfort level that I think serves people. If you're comfortable being uncomfortable, you'll continue to push, continue to try things. I think that's actually a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And, and look, and the other thing that's happened there is that when you are in the trenches, and I think this is the case for, for not just banking, but for, for anything, like for entrepreneurs that have a founding team or for anything, like a sports team or something. But any, when you give your, your life to something or anything, but when you're in the trenches with somebody, you end up like there's no better way to bond with somebody than to go through common crisis or common, you it's, know. It's, in a bad way, it is the whole thesis behind hazing in the fraternity world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. trapped together and they all bond more it, it's the, i mean it is it's human nature it is what happens right and so so some of those people that that i work with alongside uh, in banking have, are some of my closest friends today and they've all gone on to do amazing things and our bond stays because you know because that time is never coming back again where in addition to working 100 120 hour weeks and by the way just to just to kind of kind of do the math on that I would come in the office at 8 a.m. and not, and on a weekday, go home at like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. And that also means a good eight, 10 hours on the weekends too. And when you're, when you're doing that with somebody else, that's not going to happen again, particularly with all the efficiencies of technology and work from home. I mean, now we don't even have to go to the office. Many people don't have to, many people do. So, yeah. So, yeah. No, it makes sense. So, how long were you in banking for? About two years, two and a half years, actually. And then, two and a half years. Yeah. What happened yeah. next? Well, it's funny. I <laughs> I got really, really lucky. And I, you know, again, looking back on my life, I think there are these what I'll call hinge points in my life where things happened around me and to me, but not because of me. However, what I had done in my life to prepare myself, but by the way, I didn't even know, I wasn't to prepare myself necessarily for these things. But how I had prepared myself or how others had prepared me, I should a better way to put it, that enabled me to kind of, in some cases, fall into the next opportunity and in other cases, leap into the next opportunity. And this was one of those cases. 
So I had gotten, you know, because, you know, I sort of busted my butt and worked hard and all that kind of stuff. I'd gotten close to one of the partners at the investment bank and he took me on business development calls, which was kind of a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a common thing. It wasn't a common thing at, uh, for somebody at my level to be taken on business development calls because when you're, when you're a low level guy, you're just, you're a grunt and you just do the analysis. But I, you know, he took me on one of these. This was in some, uh, this was, I had already moved down to LA at this point and our office was in West LA and the business development call was a company in Pasadena. Well, the meeting, we got there, the meeting went long. It went really long. And, and when we got back in the car, he drove and we got back in the car, he turned to me and said, Xavier, I, I don't have time to drop you back in the office and I have a lunch. So you're just going to have to come with me to the lunch. And I, and I said, sure, no problem. But he looked at me and he said, don't say anything stupid, you know? And I had no idea. I was like, okay. And I'm just like, kind of a... a Sounds user. good, yeah. <laughs> so, well, it turns out the lunch was at Barney Greengrass in Beverly Hills. And the lunch was with a very senior agent at the William Morris Agency. Mm-hmm. And, and I, sure enough, I sat there and I mean, I didn't, I wasn't a mute. I, you know, said hello and those types of things, but I listened and I listened to this conversation that was happening between this power agent and I guess a power investment banker. Right. And I, it was amazing. It was amazing to just be in the room. Actually, it wasn't actually a room. We were sitting in the patio of a Bernie Greengrass, but it was amazing to just be there and listen. And after lunch, you know, we got back in the car and I turned to my, you know, the, the senior partner and I looked at him and I said, I want to do what he does. Did you like right there, you quit and went to William Morris? No, no. So I didn't quit. I, so like, you know, I guess what, if they, if they write the book on my life, they'll say I quit and I just quit. But actually in yeah. the real world, it doesn't quite work that way. You know, it's like, you know, my investment banker, your partner, he's, he kind of, he's, he's a great guy too. And and he said, whoa, really? You want to do that? Oh, wow. And I said, yeah. Because remember, remember, I had this love for the, the entertainment industry, like growing up. And actually what ended up happening was, you know, okay, I'll put in a call, this, that. And it didn't happen immediately. Like there's, you know, when something opened up and this, and I just got lucky because something, something opened up. Yeah, it wasn't immediately. It was probably six, six, seven, eight months later. And I had an opportunity then to be one of the first, I think it was the fifth agent in Hollywood that represented uh, at the time that represented companies, which is now, by the way, that's a big thing in Hollywood right. to represent the company. And by the way, you do, you in large part, you do something like that now too in uh, with hockey. We Media. also work with those departments at WME and CAA and everything like that. And funny enough, we're an investor in Paul Brico's in- incubator that he spun out of WME to start Amplify. So know him well. Like yeah, yeah. And so... But it's funny. It's the other thing, you know. I'm trying to be. Con- I, I I don't mind. I don't mind sharing names, but I'm trying to be conscious not share names just to not make it too inside baseball or anything. That's what people want. We need- <laughs> One of the things that I think Eric, you you know from being in, in the business for as long as you have, and yeah. also knowing a lot of companies, you know, you'll find that if you stick with something, if you stick with an industry long enough or a practice area long enough you end up getting to know everybody sort of knows everybody at some point, yeah. right? I liken it to almost like high school. Like when you go exactly. into high school, like, yep. in your freshman year, the high school seems so big. And depending on if you went to a big or small high school, but, but even as a freshman, even as a small high school, it seems so big. And the teachers and the students and the upperclassmen and all that kind of stuff. And then think back to then your senior year. 
the high school seems so small and everybody kind of knows everybody, you know, the teachers, you know, and you know, they'll, they'll look at you and they'll say, Eric, don't pull that again. And it's almost like there's a shorthand or, you know, that kind of very similar experience in high school. What happened with you? I'm just saying that don't pull that again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, like I think what that speaks to and what I've tried to do, by the way, didn't always get this right. And particularly when I was a a younger man, I didn't get get this right because I was, I was after the results. And I think the most important thing is because the world is, is small and because if you really want to go deep in anything, eventually that world will get smaller and everybody will know everybody. So it's very, very important to keep a good reputation. And yeah. by the way, the way you keep a good reputation is not just to be successful. In fact, I would actually put that kind of further down on the list of things. But the way you keep a good reputation is, I guess the the broader way of saying this is to be kind and generous. And maybe the more the business way of saying this is try to think what you can do for other people and how you can make their lives better. And if you, honestly, if you do that, even if not a lick comes back to you, it will. It It will. will. Yeah, that's the thing. It might not be direct, but it always does. I I have to say, Eric, and not just because you've had me, you have me on your show, but I have to say at a, you're obviously a very, very successful entrepreneur and you know, you're not the oldest guy in the world, but I think you have figured this out. And I think part of the reason your business has grown exponentially, your network has grown exponentially. And I have, I have been the beneficiary of this from you, Eric, is your generosity. And I've seen you be generous to other people. And I think one of the easiest ways to be generous, one of the easiest ways to be generous is generous in your relationships. And that's one thing I, I strive to do. And which is why I say to you, Eric, you know, my database is your database. And I have seen that absolutely in practice with you, to me and to others. And I think that you just grow exponentially, you know, or even beyond algorithmically in that fashion. I totally agree. It's been big and I appreciate it. All right. So William Morris, got to keep the path going. But yeah. how long were you there? I was there about three years, three and a half years. And it's funny, I left, I saw an opportunity in... So I, in addition to the great agents in, we called it corporate packaging, corporate advisory, new media at the time, I had some other really great senior, senior agents that I had learned from that were in other parts of the business, mostly television and in particular television syndication. And there is one agent that really was always kind to me. And, you know, kindness, it's so interesting. Sorry, sorry, I'm going to like spend a second on this because it relates to my life. But, you know, life goes, if you believe life goes up and life goes down, right? Which I do. I think that sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. That's just the way it goes. In fact, you know, I used to play poker for a long time. And I I have this theory that, you know, everybody gets, there's a standard distribution and everybody gets the same amount of of good hands and bad hands given enough time. Some people get all their hands front or not there or you get a, a chunk of bad hands all at once but everybody gets like life goes up life goes down. Yeah. and you know i feel like when you are up okay well we know when you're down right it's i don't want to say it's easier to be generous but like you're kind of like going hey i'll help you out and maybe you can help me out too or something like that yeah but i think it's when you are up there it's a very not only do you have a responsibility but i actually think it is it's important to almost selfishly to give to others because you are in a spot to give to others and you don't know when that spot is going to end. I was right? say, and I think it actually helps sustain it. I think giving to, like when you're able to give, the more you give, you said it like that you're going to get it back. It might not be directly, but it's going to come back. And so when you're in a place to give more, you will get back more. I actually do believe that. So I, I think that, that 
hundred percent agree with you. So the reason I bring this up is because there was a probably the highest revenue producing agent at William Morris at the time had no reason to be kind to me, none, but he was kind to me and he was generous and he brought me into his clients and his deals. And I learned from him. And so when I left William Morris, he helped me put together and package. I became a packaging producer and I had this concept. This is bittersweet, but I had this concept. I, I, had, I had done some research. And so this is about 17 years ago or so, maybe a little more. And I'd done this research. 2003 or four is what you said? Uh, 2002, 2002 okay. I'd say three, 2002, yeah, 2002, 2003, like around there. I had, I, because again, I, I'm a media guy, content guys and sports, right? And I had done some research and I had noticed that uh, over the course of my dealings, you know, at, 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 as an agent, that the, either the number one or number two sport in almost every single country and the almost means the ones that aren't, it's number three, was a combat sport, meaning like some sort of like boxing or Muay Thai or capoeira or something like that, you know, jiu-jitsu, kung fu, you name it, yeah. taekwondo. And so I had this crazy idea that I would go through, I would go all over the world, these sports associations or these leagues, I would license the rights to using their brands and their fighters even in some cases, License the rights to produce a, it manifests itself in a television show, but produce a super league, if you will, of all different types of styles. Like an ultimate league. <laughs> like, like an ultimate league, yeah. right? But by the way, this was before then, right? Like I, I know the Fertitta brothers were working on something at the time. And, and this is also, also, I'll tell you, this is a great lesson. There's another great lesson here about like, you know, how being successful is not just about having the being hardworking and having the right idea and being smart and all that kind of stuff. But it's actually just timing and yeah. luck, right? And I'd actually say the, everything I said before timing and luck, those are table stakes. Yeah. Like, timing and luck, you're not going to actually totally break through unless you have the timing and luck, right? And so anyway, put this together. And the idea was that I was also a big, like I said, remember I watched every single movie, right? Like, uh, uh, so there's this uh, old Jean-Claude Van Damme movie called Bloodsport. And it was set in Hong Kong. And it was basically a similar type of thing where different styles would compete. Think like Karate Kid, but not just karate, right? Like different styles, karate versus jiu-jitsu versus boxing, like that kind of thing. So I had this idea of putting together this league. And I had done that. I'd, I'd acquired the rights, et cetera, and took it to the networks. And the networks, you know, because of the, the mentors that I had, I, I had an opportunity to like go directly to the networks. And every single network... <laughs> told me some version of the following. What is this thing you're, you're pitching us? It is this fighting thing. This, what are you called? This, these different martial, these different mixed martial arts, this will never work in this country. This only will work in, in third world countries. Americans will never put up with this type of violence and this, this type of fighting. Even though boxing was massive for a lot for 50 years. That's funny. And a couple of years later, of course, yeah, we know. You know, and anyway, I tell that story only because looking back on it, that I had partnered with somebody like like a Mark Burnett, that thing, you would have gotten that thing sold, right? And what's in, really interesting is that I just wasn't ready in my career. And look, yes, it's a billion dollar idea that I was just either too early for, or I, in my own life, wasn't in a spot. But it's so interesting because years later, I started working with Mark Burnett and his partner at the time. and. I was just thinking, and I'd, I'd become close to, to uh, you know, his partner at the time as well. And I was just thinking, wow, if I had gotten to know him just two or three years earlier, 
how different things would be. Yeah. No, that's so. awesome. That's a great story. And it's, I think it's important. Like, you know, I, I see it all the time, even on Clubhouse, on all these things where, oh, I've had that idea. I already had that idea. It's like, well, idea is a good 1% of the whole ex of what needs to happen. The idea is just the start and like the tiny, tiny decimal point of like what actually occurs to create a successful company and the right partners, the right timing, the right everything comes into play. Well, and you know, it's, it's that thing about your reputation and your relationships, right? So we had put together well beyond just an idea. It was, we had the lead, we had everything. Oh, we, didn't have, we didn't have the name, right? And there's certain people that have the name. And if you can get to those people, right? If they believe in you, I actually, one of the lessons I learned early on is, you know, even though they may take sort of the lion's share of it, particularly when you're early in your life or early in your career, I would say this, I actually learned this from an ambassador that worked for George Bush Sr., the president George Bush Sr. He told me and a group of my friends, and when he was telling his own story, he told us all, take less so you can get more. And I honestly did not understand that at all. It made no sense to me. How can you or take that? Your time. You know, but, you know, even early on, you know, give, you know, it's okay to give up a little bit more to make whatever your, whatever the idea, the company, the team, the organization, make that as successful as possible because that will be your calling card down the line. Agreed. So what happened after William Morris? What was next? What took you away from there? You know, one of the guys that I, I was pitching to, I also, it was sort of a catch-all this group. You know, uh, we did digital, we did uh, technology, we represented, represented technology companies. And pretty much back then, this is the dot-com 1.0 day, right? And anybody, any talent that wanted to go into the dot-com business, right? They kind of threw to us too. And one of the guys that I had pitched to, what, had taken some clients to, actor clients, producer clients, et cetera, to, was a guy that was the general manager of go.com, which was a portal that Disney bought. Mm -hmm. That guy's name was Kevin Mayer. Mm -hmm. uh, I said I wasn't going to use names, but I'll use Oh, you got it. Yeah. If you're listening, thank you also. And then years later, he went to a strategy consulting firm and he built up a global practice for media entertainment. And I worked for him in that strategy. Which, which consultants firm? Sorry. That's called LEK Consulting. You left WME to go to LEK Consulting to work for Kevin Mayer? Yes, but a bit, but in between, I did that uh, the packaging stuff, and I actually oh, yeah. we, we actually did a number of other. I'm just using that one piece of content, but we actually did a lot of brand integration. Like it's funny, like a lot of these videos and a lot of the like Instagram brand integration, and all that. We were doing that years and years and years ago, and so this company that I had started at the time was doing a lot of that as well. So, Got it. Um, but yeah, so they worked for Kevin. Uh, yeah. And worked for there was it was Kevin, but there was another senior partner there, and again. Up, like the running theme through my career is I have gotten so cursed. I've gotten so damn lucky that I have, uh, that I have been working for some amazing, amazing executives. And I would not even be halfway or even a quarter of the way of where I am today if I didn't have an opportunity to work for them. And I got to tell you something, a lot of this is dumb luck, right? Like who knows? They, I could have not worked for these people or I could have, I could have literally worked for the guy. Uh, think about this. There were multiple partners at that investment bank. What if the partner that had taken a liking to me was someone that didn't have the relationship with William Morris? Right. I mean, I may still be a banker at this point. You know, so a lot of it is luck. So, yeah. but anyway, so so then Kevin, if anybody knows the history of the Walt Disney Company, but when Bob Iger became the CEO, I think it was back in 2005, he brought in Kevin Mayer as the new chief strategy officer. 
And then because of Kevin, Kevin then brought me over there a little later. I did the business development deals or corporate business development deals strategy for the Walking Dead Company. I've heard of it. <laughs> how long, so how long were you at Disney? I was also there about two, two and a half years. And it was a, an amazing place. I, again, the, the purview and the learnings there, because, because I sat in corporate, I saw how all aspects of the business, all the divisions were running. And, yeah. um, and that was great learning. Absolutely great learning. The incredible organization in terms of how to build a really solid one. Yeah. Frankly, I would say arguably the pinnacle of media. If you, you know, your dream is to work in media and entertainment, you, that is the pinnacle of Disney. I don't know that there's a more prominent company on the media side than that. Yeah. I have a lot of positive things to say about AT&T and WarnerMedia these days, but yes. Sure. I know. Fair. Yeah. yeah. I put you on the spot there. But yeah, in terms of the content that they have now owned and created, it's some of the you know, biggest stuff of all time. No. And also in particular, it's so funny how life works. So we'll get to it, but you know, I'm currently at AT&T and WarnerMedia. And what did I say that, like, what were the pieces of content that I initially got me down this path in the first place? It was the Disney yeah. and Looney Tunes or Warner Brothers cartoons. Right. And to find myself, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, at both of these companies in a location, in a role where I can even have even a small impact. Wow. Like that's, wow. You know, it's yeah. so cool. So, so you, you learn all about how Disney operates. What's next? <laughs> well, I mean, this is, again, back, the, my career is, is less about companies and more about people, right? And I can, I can track it to people. And next, I got to know, and mostly because of his hustle, quite frankly, one of the best salesmen I have ever encountered in my life, one of the best hustlers in a guy called Michael Casson. Yep. And Michael Casson at the time was, he was putting together, he was, he was very small. He was, uh, in fact, I seem to remember him being a one-man band at the time, and he had some contractors and some assistants and all that, but he was at the intersection. By the way, Michael Casson, for those who don't know, although I'm blown away if anybody doesn't know Michael Casson, because he is the power broker of the advertising and media space. He's the new super agent of the space. But Michael at the time uh, had been the, uh, the president of a media agency, and then he left the media agency and he started it. He just became sort of a consultant. And he asked me and we discussed and I came over and I helped him build that business. And that business, of course, today is known as MediaLink. And I, again, to, I mean, I came into his apartment every single day. That's, that's, the, that's how early it was. And I say this because there's no better learning than being right in somebody's house, you know? And by the way, when I say apartment, to be clear, it's not like a one bedroom apartment. He had an amazing, like in the Wilshire corridor. He's like, known as a great host too. He always had a nice place to host people. Absolutely. And Michael has always been great at hosting. And what he did and what it was, it was funny, he did what my other mentors did along the way. And I think back to my mentor in, in investment bank, which is he brought me to everything. He yeah. brought me to every meeting. Now, listen, I'm not confused. He didn't bring me just because he was like, hey, kid, let me have you learn. I had to, I had to sit there. I had to take notes. I had to construct deal proposals and, and figure out deal terms. How old were you at this point? I was probably early 30s. I just like, because you said, hey, kid. And, you know, with the, we, we, we've just gone through like investment banker, power agent, consultant, you know, Disney's in the strategy and corporate. And you just referred to yourself as, hey, kid, after all that. <laughs> I like it. You know what's funny is that, People remember you 
as era of of your life in which they knew you, in which they first were, uh, yeah. which they first anchored and formed their opinion of you, right? They remember you as that. So, so even though I helped Michael build that business from the ground up, right? I also, and I have no qualms saying this, I also carried his briefcase, right? Both figuratively and literally. And so that's that's kind of the the thinking behind it is that you know it's that sort of thing you know and you know how it is is like when you get together with your college buddies you you become the same sort of you fall into that as a matter of fact pre COVID I took an annual trip with some of some of my longtime buddies and everybody is prominent and successful but for some reason whenever we go we we go to and, and we stay in hotels we stay in two and three people in a room like as if we were like still 21 years old or 22 years old so that's that's kind of that's kind of what what that is yeah. it's, it's fun and so yeah. how long were you at MediaLink? i was at MediaLink for seven years so sure. I, I saw that through when again it was just michael and just out of the apartment we had a little office the pacific design center all the way through you know about 120 people revenue had grown let's say it had grown about ten thousand percent and we we had gotten to pretty much everybody that i can imagine in silicon valley in madison avenue on madison avenue ad agencies media agencies the studios were either clients or they we did deals with in some capacity so uh, i mean just an update on that they sold i believe it was 200 to 300 million dollars recently a couple of years ago to can Lyon, the owner of can Lyons. And I remember going to Cannes, and I met Michael years ago, but I went to Cannes, and people crack jokes about, like, you have to pay respects to Michael and the mafia. Like, they run Cannes Line, which is, for those that don't know, the biggest advertising conference and award show of the year, every year. All the big agencies, the big brands, that is the pinnacle. And Michael, without actually officially running it, ran it. And then the parent company of Cannes Line bought MediaLink. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and that's... It made me feel very, very happy. And for the entire team, a lot of the team that, you know, we had helped, that I had helped build, and especially for Michael, because Michael, it's just such a case of, I mean, it started from nothing, like yeah. truly nothing, you know? And in, when I say nothing, it's not like he had a piece of IP. It's not like there's some technology. It was just by sheer dint of his personality and his sweat. And you know, I was fortunate enough that I helped him helped him structure some of this stuff along the way. But it was great to see that that outcome. So we have a few more minutes. I want to make sure we get. So is that when you left to start your tech business? Yes, yes. After that, because I had seen so many opportunities throughout, right? Like so many, because we work with everybody, uh, yeah. including the Silicon Valley VCs, including enabling technologies, startups, and I saw an opportunity in structured data. And in particular, I saw an opportunity in video personalization. And so I left MediaLink, raised some capital. At the time, again, timing, you know, at the time I raised capital, the markets were very, very, some would say frothy, but I just say positive. And also people had gotten to know me. And I had at the time done a lot for the company, the portfolio companies of many VCs. So raising capital, I got very lucky. It was very relatively easy to raise capital. And so I, I raised capital. And we built a, a structured data company and that we use the technologies we built to create a video personalization engine. And that video personalization engine, for those that don't know, it's making sure the right video on over the top platforms, streaming companies, that right video, the technology behind how that right video is not necessarily served, but how it's offered, offered up from a recommendation discovery search standpoint. 
And we worked with everybody, everybody other than Netflix. They had their own internal group. In 2016, one of the companies we worked with acquired us, and that was Hulu. Awesome. Oh, by the way, by the way, back to the how life, you know, and relationships and reputation and all that is important. So when you work hard and you and you work hard and you do good work for people and you are kind and generous and you give more than you take. So check this out. So on the board of Hulu were, was, first of all, this great guy named Randy Freer, who was one of the top media executives from News Corp. And you know, he, I have a lot of respect for him as well. And uh, another person on the board was a guy named Kevin Mayer. And so when Hulu was taking a look at, you know, taking a look at their strategic options, you know, it was, it was good to have done good work and had a good reputation with Kevin Mayer. And by the way, for those that, that, that don't know, Kevin Mayer has sort of since he became the chairman of Disney Plus, he stood up, launched and grew that service, which is the top streaming service. And then he became the CEO of TikTok. So yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I, so did that. Just Eric, and I know, I know we, we are limited on time. Hopefully yeah. we can keep the clubhouse room open. If anybody wants to have questions, even after the Hawk Talk, I'm happy to take questions or anything else. We can keep the clubhouse room open. But just in the interest of time, after that, one of the companies that was interested was AT&T Entertainment. They had launched, oh, by the way, so I spent about a year and a half at Hulu, integrating the tech and the team. Then one of the companies that was interested, but we just, we didn't, didn't work out. They called me up and I was uh, AT&T Entertainment. They were launching a VMVPD product, which is a essentially like a, a bundled cable product, but over the internet in uh, something called DirecTV now. And they asked me to come over there and help them take, you know, take a look at their personalization engine and their metadata. So that was end of 2017. And since then, I've kind of been part of the AT&T family. The guy that brought me over, he was asked to be the founding president or rather general manager of the direct to consumer division of Warner Media. And that division was launched in order to stand up HBO Max. And he asked me to be the chief business development and chief strategy and business development officer. So I, I was part of the founding team of the direct to consumer unit at Warner Media. And I did that. Then I moved up to AT&T and again, worked with a great me mentor, continue to work with a great mentor in the current chief strategy officer of the holding company, the parent company of Warner Media in strategy and M&A. And that's the story. That's a great story. So last two questions, rapid fire. Number one, what's next? Without disclosing too much. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very long on the, the next, the, where the creator economy, okay? Mm -hmm. As these new platforms come to be, and Clubhouse is one of them, by the way, there is people can create content very easily on these on these platforms. But as long as you're on these platforms, the monetization of the content and how you make money on the on the platform will will necessarily and always be controlled by the platforms themselves. And in other words, they could flip a switch and shut down monetization, change ad splits, you you name it, right? So I think there's a tremendous opportunity in because the democratization of content creators, but they often can't continue to do it because you need money to do it. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity in helping these content creators monetize off platform. In other words, creating businesses for them that don't just rely on the platforms themselves. Yep, 100%. All right, one sentence, last question. What would be one thing you would tell people if they're looking to achieve their dreams? You got to do it, you got to be in media and at the highest level. 
someone else that's, you know, whether it's watching movies or figuring out a completely different thing, what's one piece of advice to achieve your dream? So many things to say, but the one sentence I would say is be kind, be generous and take less so you can get more. Amen. Thank you, Xavier. It's been awesome to have you on Hawk Talk. This was great. Awesome story. That's awesome. I'll stick around in the clubhouse room if anyone has any questions. And thank you, Eric. And thank you for embodying those three things that I just said. Appreciate you. All right. We'll talk soon. I'll see you on Clubhouse. All right. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free. Identify opportunities in your marketing strategy. Then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.